Good morning, and we're so glad you're with us here on this first Sunday of Advent. My name is Kim Erickson, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would love to have a chance to do that. I'll be out at the welcome desk after service. Or if you're newer with us, we'd love to be able to get your information to connect you further into next steps. Well, our uh, church looks like Christmas, which we love. And uh, Christmas registration for our services here at North Aurora is open. We'll be having two services, 2 and 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve. So just a couple of things with that. We would love to have you register so that we can make a plan for our guests that aren't normally with us. That would be so helpful to us. And also, if you're hoping to check your children into childcare, there is a separate registration link for that. And so if you could help us with our planning and kids to do that well for everyone that evening, that would be so helpful to us. So take advantage of that. You can take, these are available. I think you got them as you came in this morning. So invite a neighbor or a friend or someone who's been on your heart to bring to church. This is a great opportunity to do that. And speaking of neighbors, you may have gotten this last week, but if you haven't heard about this yet, we are challenging everyone in our congregation to neighbor well this Advent season. And so in this magazine, it's so gorgeous, is um, devotionals that go along with our sermon series over the next four weeks, as well as some activities to do with your kids or grandkids. And then some really simple ways to love your neighbors well this season. So please pick one of these up, as well as just a whole week about rest after Christmas. Sometimes we forget that God came to give us rest, right? And so just want to encourage you to grab one of these and enjoy it in your, with your family. We would love to have you do that. <clears throat> and another opportunity just here specific at this campus is the giving trees. And maybe you've seen that outside in the lobby. If you, We are just going to have these for a couple of weeks here. And so if you are willing to pick up a tag and purchase that item and bring it back to this campus in the next couple of weeks, we would be so grateful. That will bless our neighbors both at the Care Center and at Schneider Elementary. And then just a reminder that next Saturday is already the second Saturday of the month. Does that make your heart pitter-patter a little bit? Like, what am I doing with my Christmas shopping? It did me. Um, and uh, men are welcome to join us on Saturday morning here. It's free. You don't need to register ahead of time. Just come join us at 8 a.m. Uh, next Saturday here. So now I'm going to turn us toward worship and invite um, Pastor Andrew to introduce our reading for this morning. Would you like to stand with me as we enter into worship this morning? I want to invite my good friend uh, Bob up here. Each week of Advent, what we like to do as a church is, uh, and this is something that's been done historically across the church throughout history, is each week of Advent we recognize kind of one of the significant themes and important things that we remember in this season. So each week we'll light a candle in remembrance of that and just hear a reading from God's word to get our hearts and our minds centered on Christ as we go into worship. So Bob, would you lead us in that? From Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The first Advent candle is the prophecy candle. As we light it, we are reminded of hope. Long ago, God's prophets, like Isaiah, 
held on to the hope that the Messiah would come. Today, we need that hope of Jesus more than ever. This world can feel hollow and empty and barren at times. All that's left is a stump, and it's hard to believe that anything could grow here again. And yet, just when it seems like all hope is gone, we see a stubborn green shoot springing to life. This Advent, when we face moments of darkness or doubt, sorrow or fear, may the Spirit grow hope in hearts like the branch that grew out of a dead stump. Hey, I'm Becky. I'm Becky Chenault, and I'm the director of Chapel Street Kids here at Chapel Street Church. And I know some of y'all are um, maybe new to Chapel Street and haven't been around, and we just wanted to um, take a minute to kind of let you know some things that are going on specifically at your campus that I am so incredibly excited about. Um, first, y'all probably know we had a really fun VBS um, this summer, and this room was packed out crowded with kids from the neighborhood, and it was... Um, this is, this is a picture actually from Adventure Club. We started, oh, it, Janae, you're in the picture. You're so famous, so famous, look at that. Um, so this is just one of our small groups. It's happening on Tuesday nights. We have um, Adventure Club here for elementary school aged kids. And um, it's, it's just a beautiful time of worship and memorizing God's word and um, it's really exciting. Exciting things are happening here, and I just want you to know it. Um, another really cool thing is our Sunday night ministry. We have um, um, Sunday nights. Oh, that's Adventure Club again. Look at us doing crafts. And um, this is Navigate. This is our Sunday night ministry. Um, we are running um, between 20 and 30 middle school and high school kids show up here every Sunday night. Isn't that amazing? And... Um, if you could be here, you'd cry like I do. It is um, so incredible. Um, they walk. I'd say 90% of, of them walk here. And um, we've been doing it since um, a little over a year. I think we started about last September, just after your block party last year. And we just, you know, talked to some of the kids. We're like, hey, if we had something here on Sunday nights, would y'all come and hang with us? And um, they said, yeah, and they do. They come every Sunday night, and they don't know the stories. We're telling them the stories for the first time. We told them the Easter story. We told them the Christmas story. And um, they know that the God who created them is in pursuit of them. And they show up, and so we show up. And it is incredible, um, the fun that we have and the frustrations that we have. Andre right there in the Blackhawks. He did get um, suspended from school this week, so that's really good. Um, <laughs> but, um, but we know them, and they know us. And I just imagine that, you know, when they're um, 30 years old, they're going to they're gonna remember that people showed up for them every Sunday night and that church is a good place to be. And that's the goal, you know. I don't know that they're... I don't know that they know the big God story like a typical Chapel Street kid, but um, 
they know that church is a place where that's fun to hang out. We feed them, and we have a lot of food. Abundance, you know, I said, I want them to know that our God is a God of abundance, so we have plenty. And they take food home to their families, and um, it's just really cool. And I got to tell you this, I wasn't planning on saying this, but um, three of them, three of our um, Navigate kids, um, have joined, I don't know if y'all know about Elevate, it's a performing arts program that we have, and um, we're doing Shrek the Musical this year, and three of these guys are um, coming to Kesslinger um, every Sunday afternoon and rehearsing for Shrek. So they're, they're really Chapel Street, you know what I'm saying? Like if you say, where's your church? They're going to say Chapel Street Church, and that's a beautiful thing that they know that we are for them. Um, we so all these things are happening, but really what I want to ask you is would you pray with us for the, your, your church family, these Navigate kids, um, for the Adventure Club kids who are coming on Tuesday nights. Um, we have a position open at, this, um, at your campus called Family Life Coordinator. So somebody who could be here, who could, because I'm telling you, every time... Our cars are in the parking lot. These kids show up. We had a movie night here. We cleared out all these chairs Friday night and showed the star movie. And we had over 70 people, kids in pajamas and blankets, watching the star movie. And um, so that was really fun. And all of our kids, all of our Navigate kids came. Um, we need somebody here at this campus. So would you pray with us for this position? It's a, it's a part-time position, but... Um, but a position that um, would have eternal impact. And so would you pray with us for, for, this, um, for that position? And thanks for letting me share. It's a great story of what God's doing at your campus. It's so yeah. beautiful. So. Yeah, let's why, why don't we, just before we jump back into worship, and one of the reasons we tell stories like that in worship is because that's worship, to recognize the things that God's doing, to give him honor and glory even as we sing, to, to tell the stories of the things that God is doing. So let me pray for us and, and for those kids, uh, and then we'll continue to sing this morning. Father, thank you uh, for inviting us to be a part of what you do here in this community. God, I thank you that before the foundations of the, uh, the world, Lord, you knew each and every one of the names of these kids that come through here on Sunday nights and on Tuesday nights. Lord, you know the families in this neighborhood, Lord, and your heart was for them long before ours was. Uh, and so, God, we want to join you where you are, uh, be like you in your love for these people, uh, and serve alongside of you as you preach the good news of your son. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Serve the World really begins decades ago with uh, Chapel Street's commitment to missions. There was a growing commitment to what Chapel Street could do around the world. How could we be more involved in what God was doing around the world? Somewhere in all that, the idea bubbled up. Uh, might have been somewhere between Dave LeVan, Bruce McAvoy, and me to take that phrase, serve the world, and create that as our mission's emphasis. We started with that concept, almost like a what if we could do this, and we wanted it to truly create a deeper connection for the congregation, not just the money, not just, hey, let's raise money, because God's got all the money anyway, but can we use this to connect people to kingdom work in just a more deep and meaningful way? But we had a problem, and that was uh, while all this interest was growing and we wanted more and more people to get involved in missions, we struggled to um, fund all the things we wanted to fund because we had one church budget, and there was a slice in that church budget for missions. 
And it was really hard to grow that like we wanted to grow it because to grow the little slice of missions in the church budget, you had to take away from other budgets like children's ministry or worship ministries. So we were, we were stuck. How do we get more people involved in missions? How do we grow our whole missions emphasis and how do we fund it in a stronger way than we ever have before? And it was Pastor Brian that said, what if we created a, a separate and distinct fund that people could give to that we could then re-gift? and redistribute. And I thought, genius. And we were nervous about that because we were afraid that when you create a separate bucket, bucket other than your, than your church budget, your general fund, that people will just kind of rob Peter to pay Paul to take money out of here and then give it to there. But actually what happened was people gave more. And we realized that Serve the World Now accomplished both purposes of helping more people see it as something they were involved with. And it created the a, a bucket where people could give. Just watching the congregation engage with the different ministries in a deeper, more meaningful, more impactful way and deepen their heart and their love for a group of people struggling with AIDS in a remote part of Northern Nigeria or uh, in a youth camp in El Refugio in Ecuador. One of the gifts I remember very early was to invest in a skateboard park in Quito, Ecuador. This group of kids I don't feel like is, uh, is hearing uh, the, the life-saving message of, of Jesus Christ anywhere else. And the Lord has just has given us a wonderful opportunity. It's impresionante lo que puede hacer Dios. Puso, puso en mi camino a Brock, the Rock Skate Church, y... When you meet people who are living and serving in different parts of the world and you share kind of fellowship that is really powerful and unique. It kind of took what was my interest into and a desire that I had to, to work for a Christian nonprofit and it really like fueled that fire. What Serve the World has done for me is given me God's heart for the world. And, and that would be a, a hope for Chapel Street, that we would all be on a journey to have more of an understanding of God's heart for the nations. Well, I love what Pastor Bruce said right there. Uh, not the genius part, but the part about growing our hearts for the world. That's what Serve the World is all about. If you've been part of Chapel Street for any length of time, you know that every Advent season, Christmas time, we introduce one of our Serve the World partners to you and tell the story, and then we try to give generously to that partner. Last year, that partner was Hope School in Africa. We collectively gave over $600,000 uh, during the Advent season. Uh, and this year, what we're doing is not choosing one partner, but letting you in on the, the greater vision of Serve the World, all the other partners that we have during the year, up to 20 and more partners throughout the year. You hear about the big ones every Christmas time, but we want to tell you about all the other ones, from uh, Hope School to Wayside Cross on Aurora to Life Water in Africa to Caring Network, Naomi's House, many, many other things. You can find them on our website. So this year we want to uh, set a goal of raising $300,000 or more as an entire church family during this season for Serve the World, not for any one partner, but for all the partners we believe and know God will bring our way in 2024 to be prepared for so we, we can respond to those needs and those things going on around the world that God is doing, that people are doing, that ministries are doing, that we can't 
do ourselves here, but we can support and allow to happen by our generosity. And to participate in this vision, to give, you can go to our website, find the Serve the World, click Give button. You can use the app or just write on a check, Serve the World on the memo, drop it in the box, and all those funds will go to Serve the World and the partners we find uh, this coming year. So thank you in advance for your generosity. Well, one of the uh, first classes I took as a freshman in college, uh, very first semester, was called Humanities, and it was kind of a combination of uh, religion and history and literature and philosophy. Very challenging course, like 100 pages of reading a night, which I didn't know when I signed up. Uh, but the first uh, assignment I had that fall, again, freshman year, was to read uh, the classic work called Beowulf. How many of you had to read Beowulf in high school or college? Okay, how many of you read the Cliff Notes like I, like I probably did? How many of you have never heard of Beowulf, ever? That's okay, you probably haven't missed a whole lot. But let me summarize it for you. It was written in the 7th or 8th century, so it's over a thousand years old. And it's the epic story, a poem really, of an ancient hero who rescues kingdoms and slays dragons. And the first assignment of my freshman year was to write a four-page paper after reading this book, or skimming it, on heroism in the ancient world. Four-page paper on heroism. Now, I had an upperclassman friend who warned me and told me that my professor, who was 80 years old at the time, nearing the end of a long and distinguished academic career, that really all he cared about at that stage of his career was that you spelled your words right. So he said, just don't misspell any words and you're going to do fine in your very first college paper. So I wrote my first college paper on heroism in the ancient world, and I thought it was kind of awesome, you know, kind of a masterpiece. And got it back, and the grade on top was D minus. About as low as you can get, right? Red marks all over it. Turns out, in four pages, on a paper on heroism, I misspelled the word hero 13 times. H-E-R-O-E. You know, when you write, some words just look right when you write them. So even though I got all the other words right, didn't misspell any other words. That one word made all the difference and ruined my grade. Now, today we begin our Advent series called Light and Life. And our focus is not going to be on just a word, but the word. We're going to be in one passage of John for all four weeks of Advent. You're going to recognize the passage. It's familiar. And then we'll break it down into just sections each week. And before we start, I want to remind you that of all the gospel writers, the Apostle John is one who's given us in very clear language, his purpose for writing. We find it at the end of his gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31. He writes, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote. So that people reading, reading the stories of Jesus would come to an eternal life-giving faith in Jesus the Messiah. So if you're here today and you already believe you're going to learn a lot in these next four weeks and hopefully drive your faith deeper, if you're not quite sure, John's purpose and our purpose is that by the end of this series, you believe and receive the life-giving promise of Jesus. So here's how John begins his story of Jesus. And as I read these familiar words, I want you to notice and listen for four specific words. Word, light, life, and glory. Those are the four focal points of the messages in this series. So let me read. You can look on the screens. 
John chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the, only, of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Word, light, life, and glory. Apostle John begins his gospel by pointing not to just a word, but to the Word. Now, we need to be clear right from the start what or who John is talking about when he uses that word, word. And we see it in verse 14 that I just read. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the Christmas story. That's Bethlehem. That's the child in the manger. And John writes to tell the story of Jesus, what he did, what he taught, uh, how he died, how he rose again, and what it all means. And he begins the whole thing by telling us something about who Jesus is. Is. And as we study this passage, I want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, John, uh, of all the New Testament writers, writes in the simplest words, simplest phrases, images, and sentences. And that's why we often encourage brand new believers to read the Gospel of John first before they try to dive in like to the Old Testament or something, because it's easier to understand. Simple language. That's why um, people who aren't familiar with the Bible should start with John first, because it's easier to understand. But don't be fooled, because John was also brilliant in his theology. That is, he writes in simple language, but about some of the deepest and most challenging theological ideas in the entire Bible. So he's speaking to our hearts, but he's also speaking to our minds. And he's going to stretch our minds to the limit of understanding, and it's going to begin today. So buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to focus on just the first three verses. I'm going to read them again for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now I want to read it again. This time I want you to read it out loud with me, and I'm going to substitute the name Jesus for Word, as John wants us to read and understand. So look at the screen and read with me. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John is saying right here at the outset, Jesus is three things. The eternal word, the divine word, and the creative word. First, the eternal word. Way back when I was in seminary, uh, I had to do a semester called Clinical Pastoral Education, CPE for short. It just meant that I had to serve as a student chaplain in a large uh, Chicago hospital. But to get a role like that, to fulfill the requirement, I had to apply and then interview 
with the spiritual director of care in that hospital. So one of the hospitals I applied to was a large Catholic suburban hospital, uh, and I made the application. It didn't really matter to me that it was Catholic because the hospital is a hospital I needed to have a position. And when I went in for my formal interview, uh, I walked into the, the, the head chaplain's office, and I was surprised to see a priest sitting behind a desk. I don't know why I was surprised. It was a Catholic hospital, but there he was, the jacket and the, and, the, and the collar, and I was just a bit surprised. The other thing that surprised me is he didn't even look up at me. I walked in. He didn't look up. He sat behind his desk looking at a folder. I sat down on a chair, and in like 30 seconds of awkward, just nothing went by. Didn't even look at me. Finally, when he looked up, he took his glasses off, just stared at me and said, Brian Coffey, who the heck are you? <laughs> Only he didn't say heck. He used another word that surprised me. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what was going on. I didn't know if he always started interviews like this or whether he singled me out because I, he knew I wasn't Catholic and he was just testing me. But I sort of figured he just was trying to find out how I wanted to identify myself. So I mumbled out something like, well, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus just trying to figure out his call on my life. And he nodded thoughtfully and then a thin smile as if he liked my answer and we had a good conversation. Interview went well. I was offered a position, but I eventually took one in a different hospital. But John's focus here is the same as that priest. It's identity. Who, who is Jesus? What's the identity of this one that we're talking about? Now, of all four gospel writers... All of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John, all tell us the story of Jesus. And they all say something about what he taught, what he did, who he was, and they all start at different places if you pay attention. Mark begins his gospel with John the, Baptist, John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus when he was about 30 years old. That's where he begins. Matthew begins before Jesus was born with a genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham, and then he tells the story of Mary and Joseph. Luke begins with telling you he's researched all of this, and then talks about the prophecy about John the Baptist, and then the beautiful story in Luke 2 of the birth of Jesus. But John doesn't do any of that. He doesn't start in Bethlehem. He doesn't start with the genealogy. He doesn't start with John the Baptist. He doesn't start with prophecy. He begins the story of Jesus before time itself. His first words are, in the beginning. That'll ring a little bit of a bell with you because the very first three words of the Bible are Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, right? He starts with the great mystery of the beginning of all things. That is, before there was earth and sky and sea, before there were people and animals and forests, before there were nations and politics and war, before there was time itself, there was a beginning. And then he fills in the next word, which his Jewish background readers would have known by heart. In the beginning, Genesis says, in the beginning, God. But here John drops a surprise because he doesn't finish the sentence in the way people expect him to finish. He doesn't say, in the beginning, God. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And in that sentence, he's teaching us two things about the identity of Jesus. First, Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. Before there was anything else, before the universe came into being, before there was time, John says Jesus was. Now, Jesus actually affirmed his eternal nature himself in his own words. In John chapter 8, he says, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. In John 17, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, John was from a Jewish background. 
But he was writing in Greek to both people from a Jewish background and from a Greek background. And he has all those things in mind when he uses this word, logos, which is the Greek word translated word. In the ancient Greek way of thinking, uh, everything that existed also pre-existed. This is where you need to use your brains a little bit. For example, this pulpit is real. It's physical. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can pick it up. You can, it has weight. But in the Greek way of thinking, this pulpit also pre-existed because it existed in the thoughts of someone before they built it or made it. Get it? That's logos, the pre-existence of something that comes into view. So when John says Jesus is the logos, the word, he's saying to Greek readers that Jesus pre-existed everything that is. To Jewish readers, he's simply saying that God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is eternal. And just as he is eternal, Jesus the Messiah is also eternal. Secondly, he's saying that Jesus is also the reason for all things. He's eternal, and he's the reason for all things. As I mentioned, the Greek word John uses here is logos, from which we get our English words logic or logical. And in the ancient language, the word could mean uh, speech, thought, principle. And in Greek philosophy, it came to mean divine reason. Logos was the reason or the organizing principle of all things, that which gives meaning to everything that is. For example, if I bought a brand new car and parked it in my backyard and used the trunk as a planter for shrubbery, you would say, you don't understand the logos of a car, the meaning and purpose of a car. In the same way, you might say the Chicago Bears are struggling to understand the logos <laughs> of football, which is to score touchdowns. <laughs> Pastor Jeff would be proud of me for that one. In the ancient Greek world, logos was how one discovered the meaning of life. For example, little uh, ancient philosophy lesson here. The Greek philosopher Aristotle in the 4th century BC said that logos makes it possible for human beings to perceive the difference between what is just and what is unjust, between what is good and what is evil. 25 years before Jesus' birth, a Jewish philosopher named Philo of Alexandria wrote, logos is a bridge between a transcendent deity and the material universe. But the problem was the ancient Greeks couldn't agree on what the Logos really was. It's an oversimplification, but basically there were two great schools of thought in the ancient world. There were the Epicureans, followers of a guy named Epicurus. And I don't know if it's just me, but all these ancient guys kind of look the same. You're going to see that today. But Epicurus, he believed that the Logos of life was pleasure and enjoyment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And there are still plenty of Epicureans living today, right? How often do you hear, live your best life now? That's Epicureanism. But on the other hand, there was another group called the Stoics, who were followers of yet another Greek philosopher, Zeno of Sidium. See, they all look the same. Okay. <laughs> he believed logos was moral discipline, that is, doing what is right and just. We also see versions of that today, right? Be a good person. Be the best version of yourself. In fact, the raging political and cultural debates we have today in our culture are about what is moral, what is good and just. So when John says 
in the beginning was the Word. He's saying that the reason and purpose and meaning of life itself, of everything that exists, is Jesus. Now, to Jewish background people, Logos or the Word just pointed to the truth of God, the Word of God that came to them through Moses and the prophets. And Jewish readers would have immediately seen the connection between in the beginning was the Word and in the beginning God created because they knew how He created. He spoke. He spoke words. Genesis 1.3 says, And God said, and God said, let there be light. So for the Jewish person, the word just pointed to the power and authority of God to create, to shape, to speak all things into existence. So God spoke, and it was. So John is saying that Jesus is the pre-existent word, the reason for all things, the very truth of God himself. Jesus is the eternal word. Secondly, John is teaching us that Jesus is also the divine word. The divine word. If I were to say today, or ask you, who was Abraham Lincoln, most of you would be able to say, without looking it up on Google, that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States, right? Some of you are going, hmm. Yeah, 16th. But what if I were to say, well, no, he really wasn't president ever. He just said and did some sort of presidential things. He gave some speeches, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but he was never really president. You would say, no, 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 no. Yes, he was president. We have all kinds of historical documents and testimony to tell us he was. Plus, if he was not president, those things he said and those documents he signed would have no authority at all. And that's why what, Jesus, what, what John says here about Jesus matters. Because there were people then, toward the end of the first century, as there are people today who say, well, Jesus did a lot of and said a lot of, you know, godly things, but he really wasn't God. Back to verse 1, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I saw a recent survey just this week that said that today, 76% of Americans believe that Jesus of Nazareth really lived. He was a real historical person, 76% of Americans. But far fewer believe that Jesus of Nazareth was God. According to Barna Research, only 56% of Americans believe that Jesus was also God. And among younger people, that number drops below 50% to 48%. In other words, many people in our culture believe that Jesus is just another figure on the Mount Rushmore of great spiritual teachers, right? Muhammad, Buddha, Jesus, Oprah, you know, the great. <laughs> now, this is the historic heresy called Arianism. Yet another ancient guy, Arian, was a third century heretical theologian who taught that although Jesus was the Son of God, he was created by God and therefore, as a created being, was neither eternal nor God. Examples of Arianism today would be, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who teach that Jesus was created by God as the archangel Michael and is therefore lesser than God. Or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who believe Jesus was a spirit child of a heavenly father and heavenly mother and was a man who became God, not God who became man. Significant difference. Or your coworker or friend who says, you know, Jesus, I believe Jesus lived. He was a great spiritual teacher, but to say he was God, that's a little too far for me. 
But John is very clear. He writes, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus himself was very clear on the same topic. In John 14, 9, we read, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Again, in John 10, I and the Father are one. In fact, it's because Jesus said these things that he was eventually arrested and put to death. In John 10, beginning in verse 31, we read, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they said, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. We also have the witness of other New Testament writers. For example, the writer of Hebrews writes, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So why does any of that matter? Why does it matter? Why do I spend so much time trying to demonstrate that Jesus was and is God? Because it means that when Jesus taught When he said the things that he said, he spoke with the authority of God himself. It means that when he died, he died as the sinless Lamb of God, who alone is worthy and has the authority to take away the sins of the world. It means that when he rose again, it was by the power of God to overcome and defeat death itself and to give us the hope that death would be overcome for us as well. And it means that when he comes again, it will be in the power and glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords to bring perfect judgment and salvation to the world. The whole redemptive story of the Bible, the whole thing, the very center of what we call the gospel, the hope you have in your salvation, the hope I have in mine, the hope of eternal life itself, all hinges on this truth. Jesus either was or was not who he said he was, God. If he was not, then as Paul says, our faith is in vain. It's not worth the paper it's printed on. If he was, it means he is the divine word and has the authority to grant us salvation. So Jesus is the divine word. Jesus is the eternal word. The third thing John teaches us is that Jesus is the creative word. Back to verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Okay, what's John saying here? Why does it matter? You might be thinking, well, if you're paying attention, well, I thought the Bible started with, in the beginning, God created. And John seems to be saying, Jesus created. What gives? But remember how God created, and God said, let there be light. He spoke, and it was. So John is saying that Jesus is the speech, is the the word of God that carries the authority to create. That Jesus is therefore the maker of all things. Now, this takes us into an area that stretches our minds to our our limits. Because we're talking about the God who reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the Trinitarian nature of the God of the Bible. 
And to try to explain what that is, and we'll do this several times throughout the series, in Genesis, if you go back and read the first three verses of Genesis, you see the Trinity as the Bible begins. Because the Bible says that in the beginning, God creates, that He creates through His Word, the Son, and that the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters as God creates. First three verses, all three persons of the Trinity are present and interacting in a mysterious way. So we might say, think of it this way. No analogy for the Trinity is perfect. God the Father is like the architect, the designer of all things. God the Son is like the builder. And God the Holy Spirit is like the supervisor of the whole project. I prefer the analogy of pizza, which I won't give you today, but I'll give you later sometime. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that Jesus was the creator of all things? Because it means he was not created. The only way he can be divine and to be eternal is to be the creator himself, which is what John says. In the passage we studied a few months ago in Colossians, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. A soaring passage, Colossians chapter 1. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are together. You may remember that passage. So in his opening three verses, just three verses, very few words in the ancient Greek, John is saying Jesus is before all things. He's the reason for all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the redeemer of all things. He holds all things together. He's the source of life, all life now, your life and my life, and the hope of all life to come. He's the eternal word. He's the divine word. He's the creative word. Like most of you, I would suspect, uh, we finished decorating our house for Christmas last week, after Thanksgiving. And one of the things we do when we decorate is we have these, uh, a bunch of these little crash sets. Crash is like a little manger scene. Uh, we've collected them from around the world over the years. Uh, we have little scenes that were made in Africa, Middle East, Asia, South America. Uh, and they all are similar and uh, just carved in different ways. Uh, they have Mary and Joseph. They have animals, sheep and cattle. Some have wise men. Some have shepherds. Some have both at the same time. Uh, and all of them have a manger with a, a little baby inside. This one is from Israel. I think it's carved out of... Uh, olive wood, and there he is, the child in the manger. And we, it's easy for us to look at the manger scenes wherever we see them, and get kind of a warm, kind of a warm feeling, which we should. Oh, we think, oh, look how cute, how small, how cuddly, little baby, how vulnerable, little bundle of skin and breath and hair, you know, little. We might think of our birth of our own children, the birth of our grandchildren. And all that's true and good. But John wants us to see who this is. Who this is. This is the Word become flesh. This is the Word who is eternal. The Word who is divine. God Himself. This is the creator of all things. The one who is before all things. The reason for all things. The one who holds all together. The source of all life. This word became flesh. And so all I want you to hear this morning as we, as we begin this series is that 
the child that we celebrate in the manger is a lot bigger than we think. We're going to finish the service uh, with communion, which is an appropriate way to begin the Advent season. And communion is really a remembrance of the word become flesh. Because the child laid in the manger was the child who went to the cross and gave himself for us in our salvation. And we always say that uh, the, the bread and the cup of communion, you have the little container in your hands. It doesn't belong to us as Chapel Street. It doesn't belong to North Aurora campus. It belongs to the Lord. So if you're here today, even for the first time, if you've put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, please share bread and cup with us. I'm going to have the band come up now. And as they play, I'm going to uh, describe and lead you through the taking of bread and cup. And then we'll finish our service together. So peel off the very top portion there. Make sure you get the right side. The Bible tells us that on the night before he died, Jesus met with his closest followers around a meal, the Passover meal. And at some point in that meal, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, as he says to us today, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. side of the cup. After the cup, he also, after the bread, he also poured a cup. And Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as followers of Jesus, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Our benediction comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Then we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Have a great day.